Simplifying history, a favorite sport for all of mankind. Simplifying the roots of an organization or a movement to a simplistic narrative. We are all culprits. I mean, this podcast itself would be a major one. But certain movements come to fruition only due to the efforts of many. Neither one less than the other. Such is the story of the movement to revive the Olympic Games towards the end of the 19th century. It's a simplistic story that we most often hear. There was Baron Pierre de Coubertin, a French aristocrat and historian who revived the games in 1896. It's a simple enough story. Let's complicate it. Hello everyone. Welcome to Talking of Giants, a podcast about the giants of various fields. In season 1, we are doing brands. And given that Tokyo Olympics are happening, I thought what would be a bigger brand to talk about right now. Today's story coming out during the hard-earned sports events happening in Tokyo right now is about the Olympics. The Hellenodikai, the name for the officials and the judges of the Olympic Games, the athletes, their relatives and their trainers would all gather at the Temple of Zeus. They would take an oath to promise that they would play in the spirit of fair play and would not commit any foul or undertake any malpractice. This was the 5th century BCE when the Olympics were a glorious celebration. in Greece but bringing them back for the modern times was a feat a peculiar feat at that just imagine telling the world you know what we should do we should have games with great pomp and bring back the glory of the good old Greece i mean put aside the worldwide competition that the olympics are today even a greece wide event would have been a madman's dream in the 19th century So crazy an idea it was that the ghost of Plato had to come tell people to do it. Well, a figurative ghost. This was from a 1833 poem by the Greek poet Panayotis Sotsos. Panayotis emigrated from Greece very young and studied in Paris and Padua before settling down in Transylvania. In 1832 The Greeks won most of the southern Greece back from Ottoman control. A reward that they probably were not very pleased with was a king. The Greek allies brought in a teen Bavarian prince and made him Otto the 1st, the king of the Hellenes. Around the time that the prince moved to Nafplio, the new capital, the poet Panayotis also moved there. The young poet established a newspaper there called the sun he used this as a medium to publish poems that celebrated the birth of the infant nation on the remains of the old in his poem dialogues of the dead panayotis writes about plato gazing at the greek world above and feeling a deep anguish where are your grand structures in marble statues he wonders Where are your Olympic games? He asks. 
I don't know if it has to do with him living in Transylvania. Dracula reference. This guy really liked ghosts. Panayotis, in another poem, has another ghost advocating for the Olympics. This time, it is the ghost of the Spartan warrior, Leonidas. Or, as most of you would know him, the guy from the movie 300 who has a volume problem. This is Sparta! The ghost of Leonidas implores the people to bring back the Olympic Games. Paniotis' words were not a mere longing for a different time. He genuinely believed that the way forward for Greece was to go back to its roots. To a time when Greece became an important part of every Western intellectual's mind. Bringing back the glory of ancient Greece was the way to make Greece get on par with its wealthier European neighbours. In 1935, he wrote a long memo to the government. It was an actionable version of his poems that merely seemed like a vacant gaze into the times of old. King Otto did make some promises of an event featuring agricultural and industrial inventions that would also have a segment for athletics and games. These turned out to be mere words, however, as nothing was put into solid action. Seven years passed. Nothing. In 1842, Paniotis put out a letter in public to his king urging him again to bring back the Olympic Games to the city of Athens. He would continue writing about this and would go on to give speeches for many years. But nothing happened. For 20 whole years, finally in 1856, someone else's interest shifted onto the Olympics. The poem featuring the ghost of Plato was published in 1833. Someone finally took an interest in it in 1856, after more than 20 years. But this time, it was someone with the power to do something about it. In the poet Panayotis' quest for the Olympics, the saviour was Evangelos Zappas. A man of Greek descent, he was born in Albania and lived in Romania. He was, at the time, one of the richest Europeans. He was the push needed to get the government to act. It's like the thing economist Richard Thaler once said, if you want to get somebody to do something, make it easy. Oh, oh, Evangelos Zappas made it easy, alright? He made it very easy. He said he'll pay for it. He'll pay for all of it. But there's always compromise. There's always agendas. King Otto handed over this job of the Olympic Games to his foreign minister, Alexandros. But Alexandros had his own ideas. He considered athletics primitive and something of a time long past. And to an extent, he wasn't wrong. Athletics is a proper industry with so many people dedicating their life to it and on such a global scale just did not exist at the time. There was a lot of discussion and a compromise was finally arrived at. The funds of Zappas would be used to conduct agricultural and industry contests. 
one day would be allocated for sport. Evangelis Zappas announced cash prizes for the winners and the first Olympiad, this compromise, was announced in 1858. It was scheduled for 1859 in Athens. The greatest thing this first Olympiad under King Otto did for the continued progress of this Olympic idea and thereby the modern games we know, its greatest contribution was a newspaper article. A simple newspaper article. An article announcing the 1859 games was read by a doctor in the village of Wenlock in England. His name was W.P. Brooks. He was a sports enthusiast. He already was conducting games in Wenlock of the Olympian variety. Two months before the first Olympiad in Greece, he conducted what he called the annual Wenlock Olympic Games. He encouraged people around the region to come and take part and his games were a success. He also offered £10 British sterling to some winners of the Olympic Games happening in Greece. They were handed out as special prizes from the Wenlock Olympic Committee. The first Olympiad in Greece though was not very successful. The stadium that Evangelos Zappas had given money to innovate was not completed. So people had to compete on a plain ground. Only the ones in the audience who were in the front rows could see what was going on. Certain changes could be made which could significantly improve the Olympics. But then 1862 happened. King Otto was removed from his position as a king. A Danish prince was put in his place. Amidst all this political commotion, the games obviously took a back seat. But our good doctor across the English Channel was not ready to stay quiet. He expanded the scope of the games he was conducting and in 1866 conducted the National Olympic Games. These games did not happen in the small village of Wenlock anymore. They happened in London. The audience consisted of about 10,000 people. But here's where the English doctor's efforts hit a roadblock. Because you see, annoying people are not a modern invention. People were very class conscious in England during that time. I mean, people are class conscious everywhere at any time in the world, but this class consciousness was the ugly, open kind. The games that Dr. Brooks conducted were open to everyone to participate. Naturally, people from all walks of life participated. Logically enough, people who worked hard jobs turned out to be better contestants in certain events. This really angered the upper classes who were on the losing side of this bargain. They wanted the Olympics to be clean, a sport for gentlemen, which basically was a code word for people who didn't work very hard for their money. These were the upper classes of society and they held a lot of power. They outlawed the participation of professionals, meaning people who worked lower tier jobs that were considered lower class. 
These aristocrats started a counter club of their own and started boycotting Dr. Brooks's Olympics. With the power they held in society, they slowly brought the downfall of the Olympic movement by this need for exclusivity. But the flame of the Olympic spirit would not die everywhere. The game of ping pong of keeping the spirit alive would keep going on between England and Greece and England and Greece back again. In 1865, three years after King Otto was exiled, the philanthropist Evangelos Zappas passed away. He gave his whole fortune to Greece to be used for the Olympics. He even had a very peculiar and morbid will. He wanted to be buried in Romania. But for the next Olympiad, which is four years later, he wanted his body to be taken out of his grave. This is where it gets interesting. The body without the head, he requested, was to be reburied in his birthplace in Albania. His head, however, was to belong to the Olympic legacy. The skeleton was to be encased, the skeleton being just the skull, was to be encased in the newly built Olympic building. This was not yet built. The Olympics, however, would take a while to come back. The new King George conducted an Olympics in 1870. It was a success, but it was undermined when Greece took the same class-based approach in the next edition. Even the elitist upper classes in Greece started demanding rules the same way that the Venlochian variety demanded in England. They pushed out everyone for the next Olympics by saying that only students could participate. This obviously led to the 1875 edition of the Greek Olympics to be inferior. They were widely criticized and Olympics were halted again. But this story of Olympics is a story of fighters. Dr. Brooks, in the meantime, was campaigning in England for his version of the Olympics to succeed. He was also advocating for physical education in schools as a part of the curriculum. In 1880, he put out a proposal for an international Olympics to be held. One that would take the Olympic glory to new heights. It was in the 1880s that Dr. Brooks met a young man from France. An aristocrat, he was touring London. He took him to his trophy room in Venlock and showed him all the Olympic records and the results of the Olympics that he had with him. Dr. Brooks even had Venlock games conducted in this young man's honor. Dr. Brooks and the young man also planted a tree to mark the occasion. Brooks believed that his mission, too, would grow in strength like a tree in the years to come. The young Frenchman was the man we know today as the father of modern Olympics, Pierre de Coubertin. The rest of the story is standard Olympic history. Pierre de Coubertin founded what in time would become the International Olympic Committee. He worked with Greece and conducted the first Olympic Games in 1896. What is interesting about this story, however, is how, with the passage of time, Coubertin claimed 
the idea of Olympics as completely original, an idea that was his own. He, before that, had even at one point ridiculed the idea of an international Olympics. But he later on took it up himself. Panayotis, the poet, Zappas, the philanthropist, and Dr. Brooks, the sports enthusiast, are mere footnotes in this version of the story that Kubatan tells. With all said and done, the story of Olympics, though, has an alternate version that comes clearly into picture. The story of the Olympics is also the story of these three men. Firstly, the poet and publisher Panayotis Sotsos, who will be remembered for igniting the spirit of the Olympics into the modern world through the ghost of Plato. Second, the philanthropist Evangelos Zappas, whose head is in fact encased in the expensive Olympic building Greece built in his honor in 1888 and which is now called the Zapion. Third, the story of the Dr. Brooks, who fought many odds to make the Olympics and the avenues for international sports a reality. In the run-up to the 2012 Olympics in London, 40 trees were planted across London that originated from the tree that Dr. Brooks and Pierre de Coubertin had planted in Wenlock. These plants were called Coubertin Oaks. No mention of Dr. Brooks. But one likes to think Dr. Brooks did win in his own way. His trees and ideas did spread wide and far. And as long as the tree provides shade, maybe it doesn't have to spell our name out in the shade. Three men, Panayotis Sotsos, Evangelos Zappas and W.P. Brooks. Three men that made the Olympic dream come true so that Pierre de Coubertin could build on it. Pierre de Coubertin single-handedly brought back the Olympics, they say. Did he though? Talking of Giants is a student wiki podcast hosted by Vikyat Mutyala. Soundtrack has been composed by Bertie Ashley. You can contact me, Vikyat Mutyala, at studentwiki5 at gmail.com. That is studentvikky5 at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.